following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So I'm blessed with the privilege of working alongside of an incredible staff team. Our, our, our West Pine staff are just sharp, smart, intelligent leaders, and I also work with Pastor Dan. And the thing about working with Pastor Dan, some of you know Pastor Dan, is that he is right an annoyingly amount of times, okay? It's just annoying how often, like, he is right and I end up being wrong. It's, it's just bothersome. And so recently, we had a meeting down in uh, South Miami, and uh, I have been to this place dozens of times. And so uh, we get into the car, I'm driving, and as we start pulling out of the parking lot, he's like, hey, do you, do you want me to look up how to get there? And I'm like, <laughs> I know how to get there. We don't need that navigation. And so, you know, he doesn't say anything, and we get in the car, and we start driving down, and I'm just going to prepare you. This story does not have a happy ending. I'm driving south on the highway, and I just, you know, blaze right past the turn. I pass right by the exit, and I'm just trucking south. I mean, we're getting, like, close to the keys, okay, at this point. (laughs) And finally, and Dan's just kind of waiting for me to say something, and finally I say, all right, you probably should plug it into your phone. I I don't, I think I missed our turn. He says, that's okay. I plugged in my phone as soon as we left. It's right here. So I slapped him, and... um, no, I didn't do that. And so then I'm like, okay. And so we, we figure out where we're supposed to go, and I find the, the right turn. And, and here's the frustrating thing about that is, like, I, I know that I know, like, what the turn is. Like, I, I know the exit. Like, in my brain, like, driving away, I know where to turn. Like, I know that, like, when I turn, it just feels right. Like, I passionately know that I know the right direction. But here's what we could probably all agree on, I I think, is that when it comes to like making the right turn and getting where you want to go, like it doesn't matter how fervently you believe you know where to turn, you have to mold your thinking to where the actual place to turn is. You tracking with me? Like, okay, you seem a little unsure. Okay, so let me just... Because this is important, okay, for you to understand. All right, if you're trying to get somewhere, you may believe you know where the right turn is, but that doesn't matter if it's not the actual right turn. So you have to, you have to shape your thinking on how to get there based on reality. Like I need to look at a map, retrain my brain so that I actually can get to the place I'm trying to go. Okay, in the end, I had to ask myself a difficult question. I had to ask myself, how much do I really trust myself? What I want to do today is I want to sit in that question for a second. Because what the Bible pushes us is it really pushes us on that uncomfortable, and I'll argue, unpopular question. How much do we really trust ourselves? In this series on faith and logic, we're walking through this part of the Bible called Romans. 
And in this, in this book of Romans, it's a letter from a guy named Paul to a group of people in, in the city of Rome. And he's building an argument. And in this argument, he, he's laying this down to make a point. And we're tracking this argument that he's making through the beginning of the book of Romans, stopping down on, on some of these, these pieces to this argument that he's building. And I want to stop in on one of these things because even though this was written thousands of years ago, literally, the timeless truth here pushes us and it pushes a, a, a thing that we often believe in our modern mindsets and it's going to push us into the point where it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's important. Okay, I want you to take a look at this because here's what we believe in faith about the Bible. What the Bible claims is it's the words of God spoken through the personalities and perspectives and experiences of various writers, but it's God communicating to us to help us understand who we are, who he is, and how to operate in this world. And so here's what we believe God is saying to us through the Bible. This is in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Here's what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now that's pretty strong words. Whoever this group of people is, what Paul is saying here, what we believe the scripture is saying, is saying a couple things about their thinking. It's saying that they, they, they knew God, but they didn't treat him like God. And so it says, here's what happens. Their, their thinking was futile. Their hearts were darkened. And they thought they were wise, but they were really foolish. So wow, who is he talking about? Because those are, I mean, again, that, that's strong language. Well, if you were joining us last week, we, discovered, we discussed who the they is in this chapter. And what Paul, the writer, is doing is he's stepping outside and he's talking about all of humanity. The they in this chapter is all humans. That means you and me as well. And he's saying the natural state of humans, you and me, is as follows. Futile in our thinking, our hearts are darkened, and thinking we're wise, we're really foolish. Ouch. Let's unpack this a little bit because at first blush, we're like, wow, that, that's kind of depressing. I mean, wh what exactly is he saying? Let's start with this. He says, their minds, their, our thinking is futile or useless. Now, you might say, okay, time out. Like, I'm not sure my thinking's useless. I mean, I have like a good idea every now and then. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem like it's totally useless. Okay, well, let's just start here as a starting place. I think each one of us would be willing to admit our thinking is limited. We as a culture, we celebrate things like education, which shapes the mind. We celebrate having uh, coaches or mentors speak in and shape our thinking. Maybe you at your place of work, you have consultants that come in because maybe your, your company's stuck in a rut and you need to, to have someone to help you think differently and get another perspective. I mean, you know if there's someone in your life that, that thinks that they are 100% always correct in their thinking, 
that's a difficult person to be around. Hopefully they're not sitting next to you right now, okay? You know that that's a difficult person to be around. Like if you have someone at work or a boss that thinks they're always correct in their thinking, you know that that person is not self-aware because what we know is all of us, our thinking is limited. So we celebrate things like team. So multiple voices can think into things. So we know, let's just start with this. We know that our thinking is limited. It's not always right. But Paul is saying a lot more than that. It's, he's saying our thinking is futile, useless. And to understand the gravity of that, let's keep going. Because what he says is not only is our thinking futile, he says our hearts are darkened. In other words, underneath the surface of our hearts, there are things snaking through our hearts that darken it. There's sin. You say, are you saying like, I'm, I'm not like some evil mastermind? No, it's not saying that. But underneath, I mean, think about it with just some self-awareness for a second. Underneath kind of coiling around our, our interactions with other people, coiling around the decisions we make. I mean, how true is it that there's some element of pride and selfishness so often coiling around those interactions or those decisions? Down deep in our hearts, if we're honest... It's very rare, if not impossible, to find a moment, an interaction, or a decision that is purely 100% innocent without some kind of selfish motivation behind it. It's, the easiest place to see this is um, with children. Um, our kids, Rebecca and I, our kids are, are four and two. They're little, and so right now we're teaching them the art of taking turns. So... One will grab a toy. The other one was not interested in that toy until that exact moment. And so that one's trying to grab the toy, and then they're shouting and screaming. And so I will go in, or Rebecca will go in and say, okay, guys, we'll take turns, okay? You had it first. You play with it. And then in a few minutes, it's going to be their turn. Let's take turns. Everyone can play with it. And so we'll let that happen. And a few minutes later, there might be some screaming again, hey, it's my turn. And then we'll come in, okay, all right, calm down. It's okay if they play with it for 30 seconds longer than you wanted, okay, it's all right. And then we'll say, okay, now it's you take turns, okay? It's very easy to see selfishness in children. Recently, I was um, driving on the highway again, and there was construction. And in this construction, everyone was having to funnel into one lane. So there is a protocol that every true human being understands, okay? Someone from your lane goes, someone from my lane goes, someone from your lane goes, someone from my lane goes, and inevitably, I let someone in and there's some person that gets right on the person's bumper and they're trying to wedge their way in and I'm moving forward and they're moving forward and we're getting within inches and we're flailing our arms at each other, okay? And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, like, it's my turn to go. It's not your turn. Why do you think you have to be there 30 seconds longer than me? We're going to get to work at the same time. And that's when I realized I'm not that much more mature than my four-year-old than my two-year-old, okay? There is selfishness underneath all of our decisions. Okay, we know if we're honest our hearts are darkened. There's selfishness, there's pride to name two of many things that often darkens our hearts. But then he says, claiming to be wise, they're very foolish. 
And these are, this is a strong word, but if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, everyone thinks they're wise. It's a rare person that says, I'm just not a wise person. I just, I'm, I'm just dumb. All my thoughts are off base. <laughs> our thinking, all we can do is believe that our thinking is right. It's our thinking. How, how can we not believe our thinking is right? It's our thinking. Okay? Um, my wife and I met on a very tumultuous blind date in college. That's another story for another day. But we have been, we've been married now going on almost 14 years, and there has been a debate for most of our marriage as to what the second date was, okay? And I remember clearly inviting her to a coffee shop, okay, and we had coffee. She remembers me inviting her to a concert. Now, we both concede that those were actual dates, but I happen to know for a fact that the second date was a coffee shop, okay? Now, recently, we found an old box. And this has been like a serious debate. Like, I've, you know, said, like, Rebecca, like, how can you not remember our own romance story? I mean, what's wrong with you, okay? Like, I'm hurt, okay? And we find this old box, and we open it up, and Rebecca finds a journal of hers from those college years, and immediately, both of us have the same thought. Hey, why don't you just, you know, kind of go back to those first or second dates, you know, hypothetically, and just look up what happened. And lo and behold, there's a journal entry that in detail describes the actual second date. Now, what she found is immaterial, okay? It's not, <laughs> not relevant to this discussion, okay? Okay, there's one takeaway from this. Roby is very dumb. Rebecca is very smart, superior intellectually. Beautiful also, okay. It's been a lot of groveling that's happened since then. Okay, I knew, like I know that I knew what that second date was. Like I knew it, like for sure, like unequivocally, I knew absolutely. Okay, all we can do is just believe our own thinking. That's all we can do. But so often, like, our, our, the thinking that we're so sure is right is foolish. We're wrong a lot, and a lot more than we want to admit, okay? Now, this is saying some heavy and, like, kind of depressing things about our thinking in our hearts. And I wanted to show you one more verse because he shows what, what is driving this thinking. Okay, look what he says in verse 23. Check this out. And exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is saying something a little strange. He says, this is what humans do. We go down in our villages to this little store that makes idols. And we walk in and we say, okay, um, can you make me a gold statue that looks like that? bird or that animal or that, that image of that human or that God. Can you make me a little statue like that? They craft it out of gold and then we take it home, put it in our houses and we worship it and serve it. Now you say, okay, um, some cultures did that and that's ridiculous. I mean, someone just made that. I don't worship, I don't have little idols like that in my house. 
But he's saying this is what all humans do. And if we push into this, what we realize is we do the exact same thing. Instead of crafting an actual statue, we craft a career path and we submit our entire life to achieving that. We serve it and surrender to it. We craft in our mind the perfect romantic relationship and then spend our whole life searching for it or holding on to it or or serving it to make it happen. We craft in our mind the perfect retirement scenario and we, we leverage everything we have bowing to that to make sure that happens. Or we, we think of the neighborhood we want to live in and the house we're trying to work towards and we work towards achieving that. Or the, the car that if I just drive that car, then I know I've made it. And so we, we work and we, we surrender. We give it our time. We give it our money. We give it our thoughts. We give all these things to this idol that we come up with. Or, or maybe it's more abstract. It's like we, we give ourselves to something like pleasure or power or position or control or security. And what he's saying is common to us too. We have idols that we worship. It's, not, it's often not the, the one true designer, creator God who made us, who deserves our worship. We set up other things that we give our lives to. And those idols drive what's inside of our hearts And so a decision seems like it makes perfect sense because it gets us closer to our idol. But it's a foolish decision. Or the decision makes, seems like of course that's correct, but it's coming from a place of selfishness or self-serving because it's driven by serving that idol or achieving that idol that we think is going to bring us the satisfaction or happiness that we long for. And all of that type of thinking, it's futile. It's useless because idols will never come through. Okay, we read this and this is describing something about what's inside of us. It's describing how we think. It's describing our hearts and it's pushing on something that is what our culture teaches. It's a fundamental doctrine of our culture. And it's asking us an uncomfortable and unpopular question. How much do I really trust myself? Here's why this is confronting modern culture so much. I believe that there's been a shift in our thinking in the last generation. Previously, what we used to believe is when it came to the idea of truth, we believed that truth was, there was no absolute truth, so everyone can pursue whatever they want. Truth is relative. Call it relativism. Call it postmodernism. We believe there's no absolute truth, so have at it if it's good for you. But there's been a tweak in our culture where now we actually believe in absolute truth. We're back to believing in absolute truth where we say, if you don't follow this absolute truth, man, you will face a lot of pain and brokenness. You have to be true to this absolute truth. But what's shifted is where that absolute truth is located. It's inside. So when it comes to romance, well, how do I know if this person's the right one? How do I know if this is a wise person to be dating? How do I know if I'm really in love? Follow your heart. 
Well, we say, well, what, what's the right career path for me? What should I, what should I do? You know, is this the way I should, should live? Be true to yourself. Well, what decisions should I make? I'm, I, and you can go to a, a coach for your career or you can go to, to, a, to someone who's a motivational speaker and they'll talk about things like manif- self-manifestation and, and manifesting things and visualizing so that you can, so it can be materialized. And it's, you can even go in, whether it's the business world or even in the sports world, it talks about visualizing success and achieving and what is it that you want inside and how to make that an actual reality. And what our culture is saying is, oh yeah, there's absolute truth now. You find that inside, and if you're not true to what you find inside, there are consequences because that's absolute truth. This is not just for adults. This is being pumped into our culture and also to our kids. So let me give you an example. One of the clearest examples of this truth is that this idea of look inside to find absolute truth is a cardinal doctrine of Disney. Now, before you think I'm about to Disney bash, okay, I've got nothing against Disney. I'm going to be taking my kids to Disney for the first time later this spring, okay? Nothing against Disney, but I want you to be aware of the message and how the message has changed in a generation. So let's start with, I want you to see how the message has shifted from the Little Mermaid to Frozen, Okay, let's start with The Little Mermaid. I want you to remember, you've, you remember this movie. You've got Ariel. She's a princess. She's under the sea. She's got everything she could want. She's got things everywhere. She's, she, she has everything she could possibly need in this paradise, but she wants more. And so what she sees is she just wants to walk on land. She sees this prince that she likes. She wants to go on land, and the people around her Her mentor and her father are saying, don't do it. There are consequences if you do it. But that's what she wants. So what does she do? She makes a deal with evil Ursula, evil incarnate. And she literally sells her soul to get on land. It falls apart and there are consequences. She has to become this little ocean polyp, okay, inside the cave And luckily, her father, the king, comes in and saves her at the last minute. But the message is, even though, of course, Disney, she gets everything she wants and she ends up back on land and everything like that, there is a message, she disobeys and there were consequences. Now let's go to Elsa. Elsa has a power. She can make snow happen and can make like talking snowmen and things like this. Okay, she's got this power. But what her parents tell her to do is to hide it, conceal it, don't let it show. Okay? You're about to break into song. Like you're just (laughs) holding yourself back. Okay? Try to contain yourself, people. All right? She's told by her parents to conceal it and hold it back. But what happens? That is shown by the movie to be the wrong thing, okay? And in the great climax of the movie, the song, Let It Go, what is she shedding? She's saying, there's no more rules. I'm shedding all of that outside influence. I'm going to be true to who I am. And the message of Frozen is that there were consequences for her obedience. You tracking with me? They're saying you should have been true to yourself, Elsa. If you had done that from the beginning, things would have gone better. Okay, this is in full bloom in the movie Moana. 
In my house, that movie is played pretty much once a weekend, okay? Moana. Anyone know the movie Moana? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Great, visually stunning movie. The songs are incredible. Okay. Similar setup. Watch how it sets up very similarly. There is, there is darkness and death going throughout these islands, and it's threatening her island, Moana's island. And so she thinks the hope is on the horizon, out, out in the ocean, but what does her father tell her to do? says, don't do it, but she's going to disobey. And so she says, and there's this first song, um, How Far I'll Go. She talks about, I see there's this, something that's calling me. It's out on the sea, on the horizon. It's calling me. My heritage with my ancestors who were voyagers, they're all calling me. And so I'm going to go towards that call. Well, the song at like the crux of the movie is reprised in the famous song, I Am Moana. And there's something that she has discovered along the way. And there's a shift in the wording where she talks about where that calling is, okay? Now, I'm going to show you this clip, okay? <laughs> Stay calm, all right? I want you to see, and I want you to look at the lyrics on this clip to see how the shift in her thinking regarding her calling. Check this out. I am the daughter of the village chief. We are descended from voyagers who found their way across the world. They call me. I've delivered us to where we are. I have journeyed farther. I am everything I've learned and more. Still, it calls me. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide. Oh, I got emotional there for a second. <laughs> you were singing it too, okay? We all were, okay. And if you could sing, hear my rendition at home, it would move you to tears, okay? <laughs> okay, did you catch what she says about the calling? She, in the beginning of the movie, she says, it's out there and I'm going to it. But in this climax of the movie, I mean, this is the crescendo of the movie. She says, it's not out there, it's inside me. She says, I'll carry you in my heart. It's inside me. And then in this expression of self-realization and self-actualization, she says, I am Moana and like declares it because she's realized to be true to herself, she has to listen to the call inside. Okay, can I just take a time out for a second? If you're saying, okay, if all of this is in Disney, like movies, like, then why do you, like, wh how do you, why do you let them in your house if this is the message inside Disney? And here's what I would tell you. Because this is not just in a couple places. This is constantly throughout our culture. It's in curriculums, it's in coaching, it's in consultants, it's in Little League, it's in I mean, co commercials, it's constantly. So parents, I, I'd rather have, and however you feel led to do in your own home, is great before the Lord. For Rebecca and I, we'd rather have a place to have this dialogue for something they will inevitably face and be able to have a constructive discussion about it inside our home. 
But here's what our culture is saying. There is absolute truth. There are consequences if you violate the truth. Where is that truth located? Is it external truth, outside-in truth? No, it's inside-out truth. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. And look inside. But let's just talk for a second I mean, what does the Bible say? It's confronting that directly and saying, okay, here's actually what's inside. A darkened heart. Foolish thinking. Idols. Okay, you want to hear how emphatic the scripture describes it? Here it is in in Jeremiah um, 17, verse 9. Here's what it says. This is God speaking to Israel. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the book of Judges, which is probably one of the darkest times in the whole history of Israel. Just horrible, the descriptions of the things that happened in Judges. And there's a phrase that it repeats over and over to describe just how bad it was at that time period. It says, And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's not a good thing. The Bible is pushing us, and God is speaking through that, pushing us, saying, no, truth is not inside out. It's outside in. In the same way, like, I can't choose like what the right turn is. There is a right turn and I have to conform my thinking obviously to ex- to the external truth and shape my thinking according to it. This is rampant. I mean, can we just talk for a second about the damage this has done in the sectors of relationships and marriage and sexuality? Have you ever had a friend That was said, no, I I just really love this person. And you and maybe some of your other friends are like, this person is going to hurt you. This is going to lead to pain and brokenness. Would it be wise? Like, would you be being a good friend to say, follow your heart? That might, the world might say, hey, way to be supportive. Thanks for being a good friend. But what you and I know is know what a good friend does is saying, look, I might be off base here, but as your friend, can I speak some truth that I hope you're conforming your thinking in your heart to? Okay, how many marriages have been broken because the idea of love and covenant and commitment is based on my infatuation and my feelings? Well, I just fell out of love at some point. I guess I just no longer love them. And so we're basing one of the most significant parts of our life, a covenant with someone else based on the single most fickle part of our lives, our emotions. You realize, I mean, you have too many cups of coffee and your emotions are shifted. You have a bad piece of pizza, okay, and your emotions are shifted. And so we base, we look inside and follow that. The scripture is saying, no, you're, our hearts, this is the reality. God is trying to reach in and transform our hearts and our thinking. We have to base who we are, whether it's a relationship, whether it's our sexuality, who it is. We, we can say, okay, I'm going to look inside to determine it, or I am going to have God from the outside in transform it. And I've got to ask myself a tough and unpopular question. Do I re- how much do I really trust myself? 
And the logical answer would be, it'd be better to trust the one who invented the universe. Christians, be careful. Because we sometimes adopt this doctrine and just put like a spiritual veneer over it. And we say, look, I'm going to do this anyway because God's given me a piece about it. And sometimes what that means is I'm going to sin because I really don't feel guilty. And what that is, is that is still sin and taking you towards hurt and pain. And so what I have to do is I have to inform my thinking and my feelings based on things like having the scripture in my life that shapes my thinking and my feelings, having spiritual leaders in my life that speak into my life and my thinking, having friends in my life that are willing to speak the truth into my life to shape my thinking. Why? Because the Bible is clear saying, don't go inside. This is what's inside. It's broken. How about instead of, hey, you can do whatever you want to do with your life. You know, I I follow your dreams because if you believe hard enough, you'll achieve it. Well, I really, really believed when I was a child I would be a professional NFL football player. And I know you're surprised that that didn't happen, okay? But genetics were a little bit against me on that one, all right? How about instead, God has an incredible plan for your life. Follow it with all your heart. Now you might be here saying, look, okay, you're asking me, I don't even believe in God, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. You're you're asking me to trust with my life something that I can't see or even engage. You're asking me to trust that. Why would I trust that? Why would I trust a God like that, that I'm not not even sure? Do Do you understand? Do you understand the story of why you would trust a God like that? Do you understand how much he loves you? The writer of the Narnia Chronicles, a man named C.S. Lewis, incredible fiction writer, and he was really good friends with another historically famous fiction writer named Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and they were buddies. In fact, when Lewis was teaching at Oxford, he, um, at the very beginning, he was a staunch atheist, and it was over a long walk with Tolkien that Tolkien, a Christian, and another friend who was a Christian, they, they went for a long walk until like 4 a.m., and that was a pivotal walk where God used these two men to plant seeds in Lewis that eventually led him to Christ. And the conversation they had was, was fascinating. It's brilliant because um, Tolkien and Lewis, what they, they became friends because they both geeked out about pagan mythology and it really in, from around the world and it really informed their fiction writing. And so what Lewis said is that was actually a hurdle for him to become a Christian. Because he said, look, I've read mythologies from all over the world, like the stories of of cultures and ancient cultures. And I look in those cultures and I see some of of the same themes that are in the gospel. Like I see like things like um, a son of God coming to earth. I see things like death and resurrection. I see things like a sacrifice, someone dying for someone else. Like I see those themes. So it just seems like the story of Jesus is just another myth. And his friends said, okay, granted, those themes are other places in in other mythologies, but 
unlike those mythologies, there's actually historical evidence that a man named Jesus existed. They said, okay, I concede that point. And then they said this, and this never left Lewis. They said, what if the reason those themes are repeated in the stories of cultures throughout history around the world is because we are wired to yearn for that story and we can't help ourselves but continue to write them into our own stories. I mean, that's true of our stories, right? Think about the story of Moana for a second. I mean, how does that play out? There's creation and it's beautiful and it's thriving. But because of the desire to be worshipped and have control, the innocence of creation is stolen and now there's death and destruction moving across all of creation, destroying it. And so one human leaves their home and with the help of a God, square off with evil itself and are victorious, ultimately restoring all of creation. Does that sound like another story you know? Does that have elements of of an even greater story? Because there's an even greater story than that. It's that God created everything. Creation was beautiful, but because of, of arrogance and pride and a desire to be in control and to be worshiped, death entered in and sin and destruction entered into this world. But there was one who left his home. It wasn't a human who needed the help of a God. It was, it was both of those things in one person. It was God in human flesh who left heaven, squared off with evil itself and defeated it, restoring all of creation. You know, one of the best parts of the movie Frozen is that it, it, it corrects, and Disney's actually, it's self-correcting its definition of what love is. And it sets you up thinking that what is, what is actually love like? Well, is it a kiss? Is it infatuation with a handsome prince? Is it a ball where there's dancing? And no, the surprise ending is no. This is what love is. It's self-sacrifice for someone that you love. In fact, even more pointedly, self-sacrifice being willing to die for someone who wounded you. Does that sound like a story you know? But one even greater? The Bible says we know love because he gave up his life for us. Jesus Christ comes to earth. He surrenders his life on the cross. Who is he dying for? He's dying for us who have wounded him. He's dying for the ones on the cross. He is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And he shows the ultimate expression of love, self-sacrifice for those of us who were his enemies to win us back and to thaw our broken hearts. You know, the story of the Little Mermaid has similar themes. I wonder if we just write these into our culture. We can't help it. We're a part of humanity. And we keep writing these into our culture because there's a fundamental story we are wired to long for. There's a girl because of her selfishness. She has to face the consequence of it. She has to go down to the place of death. But, her, but the king loves her so much that he trades places with her and he dies instead. And then the one who loves her comes swooping in and destroys the evil one and saves the entire kingdom. And all those who are facing death find life again. 
But see, the real story that that's yearning for is even greater. It's that despite our selfishness and the death we've brought on ourselves, the king, not just the king of some earthly empire, the king of the universe, the creator itself, he comes to earth and he trades places with us and he takes death, but it doesn't wait for someone else to come in and save the day. He himself, through his death, defeats evil and death itself because he is also the one who is the lover of our souls, restores us and saves us and takes all those who are facing death and helps them find true life. I wonder if we are writing these into our our stories. We can't help ourselves throughout history across culturally. We write these into into our stories because we're longing for a story. A story that we can, we're wired to long for the story that saves us. The story that we, can, that we can realize saves our soul and makes everything right. And here's why you should trust the Almighty God. Because that is your story. Despite your sin, He traded places with you on the cross so that you could find true life. It was the greatest act of love. And He is in the process of restoring all creation to its original beauty. That's your story. That's the one you should put your trust in. Not what's inside. If you're here and you're saying, look, I, I don't know. I, it's such a big leap of faith. It is faith. But today, take that step of faith and put your trust in the one who loved you and made you. Put your trust in Jesus today. If you want to take that step, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to take just a quiet moment of prayer between us and God. Is that you today? You want to trust God and put your trust in Jesus? And if that's you, you can do that right now by just, I'm going to just say some words and you make this prayer, your prayer to God, silently right there in your heart. So with everyone with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if that's you, then just simply right there, Just make this your silent prayer to God. Just say, God, I want to trust you. I'm struggling to relinquish control. I'm struggling to dethrone my other idols. But I acknowledge that you are the only one worthy of my worship. You are the only one worthy of trusting. So I believe that you saved me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me. I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And now I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.